friends on this continent and beyond this is katie in paris i'm joined by dominic kramer in amsterdam is it amsterdam this week yeah i'm back finally although i have been everywhere this week you're such a little globe trotter uh and we are back with another week of european miscellaneous and i've had a rubbish week so i'm hoping dominic that chatting to you and our lovely guests is going to cheer me up oh no what happened uh so if you're listening to this while eating, I really apologize for the story I'm about to tell you. But um, you know how I just got back from a work trip to South Africa? Yes. Well, while I was away, a friend was staying at my place in Paris. My friend Christy, she's visiting from Hong Kong. And she sent me a message while I was away saying, oh, I've arrived safely, but there's this weird smell coming from the back of your flat. And I can't work out where it's coming from, but it's disgusting. And I was like, okay, I'll, look, I'll fix this when I get back. Got back on Saturday, very tired after uh, an overnight flight. And uh, Christy was right. There was this hideous smell that smelled like rotting plants coming from the back of the flat. And we cannot, for the life of us, work out where it's coming from. And even worse, there's quite a lot of flies in the back room that seem to be coming from nowhere. And finally, I go out into the corridor and I realise that the smell seems to be coming from the door that goes down to the cellars of our building, which backs onto the back room of our flat. And uh, with great trepidation, I unlock this door and this cloud of flies hits me in the face along with this putrid smell unlike anything I have ever smelt before. And it turns out that, um, you know, I live next door to a restaurant. I remember that restaurant. They own some of the cellar space. Yeah. And they've left a cupboard full of potatoes in there. And because it's August and we're in France and France basically shuts down in August, they have just left these potatoes in there and forgotten about them. Like literally thousands of potatoes. It's this massive cupboard. And these potatoes are black with rot and crawling with flies and maggots and it's like something from a horror film it was absolutely disgusting and uh, the long and short of it is i tried to get the council to come and fix it but they said no it's your problem this is like a private problem between individuals and because the restaurant is shut for like the whole month uh, me and my friend christy ended up having to gas this cupboard with fly poison and just haul around sacks of rotting potatoes into the bin for a whole afternoon. It's a private problem between individuals. That's very libertarian of them. It is quite. And unusual for France, where everything seems to be a public problem. Oh, you poor thing. I feel really bad about my really nice week now. Tell me about your really nice week. Cheer me up. Well, I went to a lovely wedding in Kent and stayed in Deal, which is a lovely seaside town. Then I went walking along the chalky cliffs of Seven Sisters on the Sussex coast. I then flew into West Cork. Oh, it's so beautiful there. And enjoyed Cork City itself, where I met my two new baby cousins. Aww. Oh, and I met a podcast fan in Cork City, one of my mum's friends who loves the podcast. And also shout out to her for doing amazing bit of plastic protest in Tesco's last week, um, despite feeling nervous about it. She held up the queue and unwrapped all her plastic vegetables oh, um, cool. and asked them to be handed into the manager. And fortunately, she had a documentary maker in the row behind her who was making a documentary about wasteful plastic. So she had someone cheering her her on wait was that completely by accident it was absolutely by accident yeah no way but um good on her for doing it it made me think i should do something like that too nice one that's great uh similarly great look at me segue similarly great are the two guests that we have for you this week we are going to vilnius the beautiful capital of lithuania to talk about a rather racy advertising campaign that the city's been running we have agneta ladik on the line to tell us whether vilnius is indeed quote the g-spot of europe 
And then we'll be talking to Dimi Dimitrov. He is a Bulgarian living in Brussels who works for the organisation behind Wikipedia to chat about some really interesting questions around how we use the internet in Europe. Um, we won't be talking about this in detail this week, but we just wanted to send our condolences to all the people who have been affected by the awful disaster at Morandi Bridge in Genoa last Tuesday. It's such a horrific thing that's happened and there's a lot of moving elements to that story at the moment, so it didn't really feel right for us to cover it completely now. But um, I'm sure we will look at it in the future and we send our heartfelt condolences to anyone who is involved. At the time of recording, there are at least 38 people that have lost their lives in this horrible, horrible bridge collapse and uh, quite a lot of others still missing. So it's a really horrible time for Italy and we just wanted to send our love and condolences and solidarity. So here's the show. It is time for the people's favourite segment where we look at who's had a good week in Europe and who's had a bad week. Who's had a bad week? I'm just going to introduce this by saying that um, Katie complained that my bad week last week about the accidental shooting of a missile across Estonia was not fun enough. Um, So I'm going to try and go with like a slightly lighter tone in this week's bad week. But if it ends up with me sounding a bit too flippant about what is actually quite serious, please send your letters of complaint to Katie Lee. You can find her on Twitter at KJA Lee. So it has been a bad week in Gothenburg and some of the Swedish cities surrounding towns where there's been a wave of arson attacks on cars over the last week or so. The police in the region said that around 100 cars had been vandalised or set fire to. And now Prime Minister Stefan Löfven responded by saying, what the heck are you doing? kind of casting himself perhaps more like a grumpy parent than the prime minister Um, but he also observed that the attack seemed extremely organized and prepared i'm not exactly sure how prepared one needs to be in order to carry out an arson attack um the police spokesperson mentioned that the attacks were thought to be organized using smartphones um, (laughs) which are like very advanced does anyone have a phone that isn't a smartphone anymore my dad my dad does oh okay well then the police were right then to clarify that it was a smartphone. Maybe I'm underestimating the technical abilities of the youths that are suspected of starting these attacks, but I imagine there isn't too much organisation required to set dozens of cars on fire. Uh, That said, these attacks come under a month before a general election in which, you guessed it, there is a populist party who may be hoping to benefit from a fear of immigrants and crime. Some politicians suggested that the attacks had been organised by the far right themselves, but it seems like this was just conjecture and the police have said there's absolutely no evidence of that and let's not run with it because otherwise we're helping these populists. Remember what Timo said in our episode two weeks ago? Who's Timo? You see, he told us to kind of forget that the whole thing happened. That was clever, wasn't it? Oh, really clever. Well done, Katie. Um, Also, the fact of the matter is that there seem to be waves of car arson each year in Western Sweden, actually each summer. Um, And according to this great English language Swedish news site, The Local, they have been doubling each summer. So, yeah, it is more than last year, but there is a steady upward trajectory of arson attacks. So I really don't think it's got anything to do with um, the far right politicians. Anyway, what is clear is that these attacks come from somewhere. And as with the riots in the UK in 2009, politicians should probably reflect and see why these young people feel so disconnected and angry with society. And uh, because of the upcoming election, the Prime Minister really had to respond strongly. And other than the what the heck are you doing, he also stated that he was 
really getting mad. <laughs> he really is channeling this whole like angry parent thing, isn't he? he re- it is. Yeah, I quite like it. Um, so two have been arrested already and one was also picked up trying to make his way to Turkey and is now back in Sweden for questioning. Even by French standards and people really, really enjoy setting cars on fire in France during riots. This is extraordinary. It is so many cars. Yeah. OK. Are you also thinking it's extremely organised? I'm thinking it's extremely organised and must have involved smartphones. <laughs> Yeah, and maybe even the social media. (laughs) (laughs) They've probably been hashtagging it. Who's it been a good week for, Katie? Uh, We're staying in Sweden for a good week. It's actually a pretty controversial one. And Dominic did advise me that I was opening a can of worms with this one. But it was a good week for the person involved. And I think it's really interesting. So I wanted to talk about it. It's been a good week for Farah Alhaja, who is a 24-year-old Swedish woman who has just won a very controversial court case. Farah is a Muslim woman living in Uppsala. And about two years ago, she was at a job interview for a new job as a translator. And when the male interviewer held out his hand for a handshake, she refused to take it. And what she did instead was she put her hand over her heart, which is a fairly standard greeting in the Arab world. At that point, her job interview was cut short. The company was just like, well, if you're not going to shake hands with a man, then you can't work here. And Farah sued for discrimination. She said it was against her religious beliefs to have had physical contact with men who weren't in her family. And uh, this week she won the case. She won 40,000 kroner, which is about 3,800 euros. It kind of gets to the heart of this debate that we're having more and more often in Europe, which is obviously not a new debate. Like we've been a multicultural continent since the beginning of time. But it's just that like when people talk about what it means to be European, being tolerant is something that comes up a lot, but we're increasingly debating like what that looks like, what form that tolerance should take. Does it mean that you let people live by their own values or does there have to be some element of saying there are certain rules that everyone abides by, not just the law, but like social rules, like for example, shaking people's hands. And certainly where I live in France, that's long been the prevailing mentality that you have to assimilate to some extent. Um, in England, where you and I are from, I feel like we're quite a lot less like that. But the handshake thing, like, I don't think she should have been kicked out of a job interview for putting her hand over her heart instead of taking his hand. I actually think it's a very nice way to greet someone. But can I see why it bothers people? Yeah, I can to some extent. What do you think? Well, I think the fact that she had a really good argument saying that um, she decided not to shake the hands of the women or the men in the room. Right. So she didn't want to discriminate based on sex. uh, So she was the one being discriminated against. Um, And I think that's quite a good argument, actually. Um, And did you just see that today there's been another story about handshaking? No. From Switzerland, where a Muslim couple have been refused citizenship for refusing to handshake. Oh, no way. Yeah. Week of the handshake, it seems. So it's pretty common for cities around the world to have like a slogan or a tagline to advertise themselves. And Paris has quite a lovely one, and it's in Latin because we're pretentious, which is uh, fluctuat nec mergture. If you think of the city like a boat, it means that the city has been tossed by the waves but not sunk, which I think is really nice. It's a kind of message of resilience. Oh, yeah, that is quite nice. I think it's lovely. What's the Amsterdam one? I Amsterdam, which I <laughs> hate because I read it as I am Sturdum. What is Sturdum? Yeah, what is Sturdum? It probably cost a PR agency like millions to come up with that. It probably did. But for some reason, all the tourists flock to the I am Sturdum sign. They love it. Anyway, Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, has been causing a bit of a stir over the past week or so with a new advertising campaign which builds the city as the G-spot of Europe. And the extra tagline is, nobody knows where it is, but once you find it, 
It's amazing. I love it. And to make this even better, they launched this campaign on August the 8th, which is National Orgasm Day. Oh, it's so bold of them to come up with this, especially just a month before the Pope visits. <laughs> which is for a quite Catholic country. Um, but I think it's brilliant. Maybe that's just because I have a really puerile sense of humour. But I think it's really nice and sort of self-aware and self-deprecating. They're very aware that no one's heard of them. I really like it too, but um, maybe doing it before the Pope, it made me think, has it come too soon? Oh, <laughs> Dominic, shame on you. As your husband pointed out, there's quite a lowering of the tone in terms of Vilnius nicknames. Uh, it used to be known as the Jerusalem of the North and the Athens of the North, both of which are quite classy. But didn't get as many uh, column inches written about it or podcast minutes. <laughs> so neither of us has been, but we were kind of intrigued by this idea that uh, Vilnius is this really underappreciated gem of a city in Europe. So we decided to call up someone who could spill a few of its secrets. Or rather, I decided to call someone up because Dominic is moving house for about the 50th time this year and was out looking at yet another flat. Agneta Ladik is an independent tour guide in Vilnius. And I started by asking her how people in Vilnius feel to have their hometown branded the G-spot of Europe. Well, of course, like Lithuanians are really very passionate about everything. We are like Northern Italians. So whenever there's something kind of uh, controversial in the country, so usually the country splits into two parts. So, of course, this was also the case, especially now having in mind that the Pope is coming to visit um, Lithuania in the end of September. There were a lot of people like, oh, great, uh, it's funny ad. And there were also like people who were like, it doesn't really match our long-term strategy. We don't want to increase like sex tourism or something like that. I think there will be like two different opinions about this ad campaign. I mean, the one obvious thing is that everyone is suddenly talking about Vilnius in a way that nobody was talking about the city a couple of weeks ago. So in that sense, it's a successful campaign, no? Yes, yes, sure. Otherwise, if we would have an uh, ad campaign about, I don't know, like a nice lady with her dog or something like that, no one would pay <laughs> any attention. And um, now, of course, we chose a very controversial topic. Uh, and of course, now we are on the main stage. <laughs> Dominic was very keen for me to ask you, has there been an immediate influx of visitors after this advertising campaign was launched? Um, I think so that we are getting... Uh, attention from all over the place. I also noticed more and more tourists uh, asking about the availabilities of uh, tour guides and so on, like suddenly. Fantastic. I am not really sure if it's influence of this ad campaign. It might be. We have to see like at the end of the year how the tourist number increase. Do you think it's fair to think of it as a city which, as per the advertising campaign, is really amazing, but for some reason isn't one of the most visited in Europe? Like, why is that? Well, a lot of people want to go, first of all, to Paris, London, Berlin, those big um, metropolitan cities. But I think all those small cities, they have also to offer a lot of things. And now we are getting more and more tourists from different countries and they really like this place. Usually what they say that Vilnius is not really a typical Eastern European city. First of all, it is the most Italian city in the eastern northern part of Europe. 
there are a lot of things Vilnius has to offer and uh, usually it's like very unexpected. Okay, let's put your tour guide hat on then. Say I have 24 hours in Vilnius, what shall I do? Top three things. Vilnius is really very multicultural and has a lot of things to offer. So, for example, we have very nice festivals, open kitchen. It's in Ujubis Republic, um, kind of artist uh, republic, which is compared to Montmartre in Paris or Christiania in Denmark. On that festival, you can try different food of different countries in one place. And they play music. So it's like really nice place to hang. We have very nice uh, bars to hang out, boutique shops. You can find here local designers, which are really original, nice things to, to wear. Then we have um, hot air balloon flights. So actually... Mm-hmm is the only one city in Europe where it is allowed to start hot air balloon not only in the center but in the old town. So you just fly above the old town, wow. usually in early in the morning or in the evening. So you just see how the city awakes. It's like really amazing view. So you definitely need at least 24 hours for it and just <laughs> rush everywhere. Okay, consider my trip extended to a, a full week. I think I've got enough things to do. Um, I'm going to ask you a few quickfire questions. Best bar? Best bar. It's very popular to go to Shinakutis. They have several locations in the city and they all are different. You get um, local beer. It's not usual typical Western European bar. Best local snack? Best local snacks. So definitely everyone falls in love with Keptaduana. It's mean fried bread. It's very crispy and you get it with cheese dip and it's a bit with garlic. So you smell um, afterwards a bit, but <laughs> it's really very delicious. You're really selling it to me and it sounds very healthy as well. Best thing to do for free? Just on a weekend, you can go to the courtyards of the President Palace. So you just take a walk, the same walk as our president does in the working days. You just take the same walk in the weekends when she's away from the building. So it's also very nice view. And you just can imagine all the presidents and kings coming to official visit to Lithuania. They are just there in that courtyard. And uh, final question, favorite fact about the city? Out of 1,000 years, approximately 700 years, we were involved in different wars or occupied, and we still managed to maintain our language, culture, traditions. So as a small country, we're kind of proud of that. That was the very wonderful Agneta Ladek. If you decide to go looking for the G-spot of Europe and head to Vilnius, you should definitely look her up and get her to show you around. We will post a link to her website. Our next interview is Dimi Dimitrov. He is Bulgarian and he is the Brussels guy. I don't think that's his actual job title, but that's how he describes himself. He is the Brussels guy for Wikimedia, which is the network of charities and volunteers that runs Wikipedia. I don't know what I would do to procrastinate if it wasn't for Wikipedia. And they are responsible for hours worth of internet black holes that I've fallen down just by clicking from one link to another. Um, And, you know, actual good educational stuff as well. Research for this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Extremely helpful for that kind of thing. So Dimi is their guy in Brussels. He lobbies around stuff that would make their work easier. So basically stuff to make the internet freer. And uh, we have been reliably informed by our listener, Liam, who put us in touch with him, that he's really good at explaining stuff that seems really complicated, but is actually really important around how we use the internet in Europe and in general. Internet regulation in general has been like a super big thing in Europe over the last couple of years. So we just thought he'd be an interesting person to talk to. 
So what exactly is your job? Why does Wikimedia need someone lobbying for them in Europe? When we look at the internet, none of our laws currently are made to apply to the internet. Copyright being my favorite example where it exists in 28 different versions in 28 member states of the European Union. Uh, but we do have one single internet. So, of course, this is not compatible. And earlier or later, this will get changed in one way or another. Um, and every time such a change happens, it can either be positive, neutral or negative for us. So what has happened so far in the past is we usually were never part of this conversation, although what this legislation does directly influences what we can show on Wikipedia, what our volunteer editors can add as an image or a text or a link. And uh, in quite a few countries, in Italy, in the US, sometimes worldwide, we've had to black out Wikipedia. So uh, one of the arguments of having somebody here is to actually be able to engage with policymakers, raise a few red flags early enough if there are things that we really, really cannot accept because they would hurt Wikipedia and make sure that a lot of these negative side effects of new legislation for Wikipedia would get bowled out of the proposal so it doesn't have to come to a final showdown with a lot of blackouts. Wait, so hang on, you, you've actually had to shut down Wikipedia repeatedly for like copyright reasons. I kind of wasn't aware of this. I mean, we had several Wikipedia language versions that decided to blackout ahead of the last vote, but these are always independent decisions of the local language Wikipedias. You're talking here about this uh, legislation that was trying to pass in the, the European Parliament back in June, I think. And the uh, really controversial article was Article 13. And I think there was talk that it was going to create the death of the meme. And uh, you were, you and your founder, Jimmy Wales, were fighting against this article. And um, what exactly was so bad about it? And do you think we're out of the woods? Is this definitely not going to pass? Well, we're not out of the woods. It's uh, what, what it would have done is it would have required all platforms that allow users to post content which includes basically also every platform that allows uh, users to have uh, comments in a comment section. All platforms that allow users to um, post any sort of content would have been required to check before it even appears online whether the content is an infringement or not. And then things would have uh, been blocked or deleted before it even appears online. And this is quite scary because um, in copyright law, in every EU member state, has a system of exceptions and limitations which allow uses of copyrighted content in many situations. For instance, if I want to make fun of something for parody, I'm in most EU member states allowed to use copyrighted content in order to make fun of it or to criticize it. Whether I'm making fun of something or not depends on, well, on human nuance and on context, which is something that automatic pre-filters, which would have been required for all user-generated content platforms, uh, cannot call. An algorithm cannot really say whether here we're making fun of something or not. Um, and this is the scary part. And the other part is that once you have such a system in place that can actually delete something before it's even set, this is a perfect infrastructure for any sort of, uh, let's say, freedom of speech or censorship attempts by, well, let's say, companies or governments. 
We are opposing this not out of particular interest, but out of a general principle that we believe that this is a dangerous development for the internet and the freedoms it came with. It does sound like it would have made the internet a much less creative place. That's why I thought it was kind of interesting that on the other side of this debate were actually some creative people, like people who make stuff, musicians, especially big musicians. Paul McCartney, I think, was one person backing this big, massive new law because he was saying people that produce stuff deserve better protections so that people don't rip off their stuff, basically. What do you think of that argument? There are ways to fix uh, even Article 13 without having to block and delete. I mean, when you talk to all the rights holders' representatives and all these artists, well, not to Paul McCartney himself because he wouldn't talk to me, when you talk to them, they say, we actually don't want our content to be taken down. We don't want our content to be deleted, even if it's used by somebody else to like do a remix. We just want to be fairly remunerated. Yeah. It doesn't sound like it was the right solution. Um, I was wondering when it actually comes to the lobbying, how much of it happens in official meetings and how much of it... I always have this idea when I hear of lobbying that it's all like going for drinks with the right commissioners or the right MEPs. Is it? Is there a lot of casual lobbying like that? So for me, the vast majority is official meetings that I have officially requested. Of course, it's not such a big place. It happens that you meet somebody, um, I don't know, at a sports event or at a bar. Um, however, at least for me, that rarely that rarely happens. Maybe it's also because Wikimedia doesn't uh, have a budget to invite people to bars and restaurants. So you know, if I go with you to have a coffee. Uh, then you will be paying your own coffee and I'll be paying my own. (laughs) The way that we regulate the internet has been a massive thing in Europe and something that we talk about a lot. There was this whole big GDPR thing with the emails a while back. And I remember a few months back when Mark Zuckerberg was appearing in front of Congress, he said that when it comes to internet regulation, the Europeans have got things right. Would you say that's true? Have we got like good digital rights in Europe, would you say in general? I I don't think anybody knows how to do things right. We're like the second or third generation settlers that create the roads and, you know, the rules of this new internet society. So there will be a lot of mistakes. But um, I think there is, when it comes to data protection, Europe has this history of protecting the personal and the private life, which is why data protection rules here are possible. Some would say too strong data protection rules, but data protection rules in Europe are possible that would be unthinkable elsewhere in the world. I was wondering if you had any other juicy cases from the European Parliament that you've been involved in that our listeners might be interested in. Well, what I think is interesting is that uh, most of the um, parliamentarians and most of the MEPs really don't understand this copyright thing. So, you know, they constantly post things on their Facebook sites and on their websites that are clearly infringements of copyright law. My favorite example is, of course, this freedom of panorama. So uh, an exception to copyright that lets you freely take pictures of buildings and of monuments that are visible uh-huh. from, yeah. from public streets and spaces. This exception exists in several countries. In other countries, you would actually have to ask the architect for permission first. Really? That's mad. Well, uh, architecture is art, and art is protected under copyright law. So when you take a picture of art, of course, that's a derivative work. So that's why most EU member states, but not all, have an exception to copyright that says, well, when it comes to pictures being taken from public spaces, that's fine. You know, that's, that's all right. But for instance, this exception in France only exists for 
non-commercial purposes, so basically for private uses. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, while let's say in the UK, in Germany and in Belgium, it exists for all uses. Which means that if you take a picture of the European Parliament in Strasbourg, their Strasbourg house, and put it on your politician's blog, and most MEPs do have their own website or blog, uh, and a lot of them do have an image of the European Parliament um, somewhere in there. That is an infringement unless they have asked the architect for permission first. <laughs> That's madness. I'm going to be totally frank with you and admit that this week's happy ending doesn't really have a happy ending for our protagonist. But the fact that it even happened makes me so happy. So I thought I'd just go for it anyway. Forgive me. So we are in Guernsey this week, where our local hero is a resident named Rosie Henderson, who was concerned with some proposed roadworks on the small island of Guernsey, which lies in the English Channel between France and England. There were plans to narrow a bit of road to make way for luxury waterfront accommodation, which she claims will endanger both pedestrians and motorists. She wanted the roadworks to stop, and in order to do this, she invoked an old Norman law dating back around a thousand years. The law is known as the Clameur de Arrow, and if you recite this Clameur, then you have 24 hours to present your case in court. This is exactly what Rosie did. She stood in the road, shouted her bit, Haro, 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 allez de mon prince, on me fait tort, or haro, 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 help me, my prince, I am being wronged. Who's haro? Or are you saying hello in a like racist Asian accent? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I actually, I read an explanation of it, of why it's haro, and I still didn't understand, so I'm just gonna... Leave that, okay, if that's okay with you. Okay, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> anyway, the roadwork stopped, hooray, but only for a few short hours because uh, her case was thrown out of court. As the judge said, she didn't own the land. Aww. But good on Rosie for trying, hey? And I'm going to leave you with Rosie's inspirational words. It is something that is Guernsey and we should honour what is our right. I think more people should stand up and get their heads above the parapet. Yes, you get shot down, but if you don't try, you'll never succeed. And I want you to cut straight into Elia. If at first you don't succeed. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Europeans. Hopefully Katie will have a slightly better week this week. And sadly, I won't be on holiday anymore, so... I'll probably have a worse week. We had a, a good week for the podcast in general, though. We got a glowing recommendation in the Podmail newsletter. Thank you to reviewer Thurza. She said that she started listening to us instead of the radio. Isn't that nice? It was really nice of Thurza. And I was really happy that it emerged in a newsletter that I read every week from Caroline Crampton, her Podmail. Do subscribe to that if you love the pods. Yeah, which we do, personally. Oh my God, I'm really enjoying the Good Place podcast. There's a Good Place podcast? Oh, it's so good. Yeah, and it's hosted by Sean and each episode goes through an episode of the TV show with one of the actors and one of the writers, usually. And it's brilliant. It's my favourite nighttime podcast right now. I'm going to check that out. It's going to become my favourite nighttime podcast after the sound of our own voices, which lull me to sleep every night. I, I don't actually do that. That would oh, be creepy. Really creepy and weird. Um, find us on the internet in between episodes. Uh, we are around on Twitter at Europeans Pod, on Instagram, where we're getting quite good actually at posting the pictures uh, at Europeans Podcast, 
And the other one. What's the other one? Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Europeans podcast. We don't have a Wikipedia page yet. Oh my God, we should. Somebody make that for us. We can't do it ourselves. That would be very vain. But I think most people do. There's always like stories about politicians making their own Wikipedia pages and editing them to make it sound really flattering and nice. Yeah, we don't want to join that club. Someone please make us a Wikipedia page. Thank you. Bye-bye. Do otherwise let us know what you think about the show, especially if it's nice things. We do love praise, as you can probably tell. You can drop us a review on Apple Podcasts or, you know, just shout to the hills about how much you love the pod. That would be very much appreciated. Have a great week, everyone. I hope it's free of rotten potatoes. Dovish dinner. Vusagaro. <laughs>